1986, I purchased a flat in the fashionable district of London's Primrose Hill and opened it as an office for my new rare books business. I'd spend three nights a week there and return home to Warwickshire for long weekends, which was both a sensible business plan and a necessary marital one, because it was yet another period in which Barbara and I found each other's constant presence abrading. I purchased the flat entirely on my own, using money from my father's legacy, she never even came down to look at it, as a bolt hole into which I could escape for half the week. It initiated a period of great happiness and excitement for me in my London incarnation, with the tricky marital negotiations of the weekend's small price to pay, amply compensated by the chance to see the children. Bertie, then age seven, didn't like the look or smell of it. Are you and Mum separated, he asked me, when it became clear that I was going to be away half the time. Well, I, um, I wouldn't say that, I prevaricated, because separations are for people who only have one house. Uh, we have two houses, and we use them both, so I need to be in London for my business, don't I? He was smart enough to see through this, and he continued to seek reassurance. Look, Dad, he said, I'm a simple boy, and I like a simple answer. Are you separated or not? Not, I said. He looked relieved, if not entirely satisfied. Anna, though, took the opposite position. When I got home from London on Thursday evenings, she wouldn't talk to me at all, stayed in her room reading a book, her head turned away when I went upstairs to say hello. Reading was what she did when she was particularly angry. It's no wonder that she soon became addicted to thrillers and to tales of serial killing. She was often, sadly, a better reader of the state of our marriage, of how dangerously the tensions had risen, how fragile the emotional situation was, than Barbara and I were, and Anna had taken on from an early age the anxious role of watchdog and peacemaker. She knew what my regular absences meant, that Barbara and I were estranged, and that I had abandoned her. She glowered with that ingrowing rage that children who are powerless to halt the inevitable frequently feel as their lives slowly morph into undesirable new forms. On a Friday morning, she still hadn't entirely forgiven me, but she was genuinely glad that I was home, and we'd meet over the neutral ground of the kitchen table before she went off to school, and I'd give her a huge hug, and she would respond, tentatively at first, firming up the pressure as the seconds go by. It was an immense relief to me each time and heartbreaking. I'm glad to be home, chicken, I'd say. She loved being called chicken, a nickname that dated back to her infancy when I made up stories about a family of chicken midgets who lived in my beard. She was one of them. And she was happy psychically to remain so in some small part of herself was a process fraught with regressive possibility, which made it necessary that she develop at some point a strong alter ego to counterbalance this ongoing childhood persona. I don't think it was through me that Anna first read Thomas Harris's The Silence of the Lambs, which was published in 1989. It wasn't the sort of thriller that I much liked. I think I read it on her recommendation rather than she on mine. I hope this is right, because I'd feel guilty having introduced her to such contagious material. There was my little chicken filling her head with horrible images, not like those from normal thrillers, which are usually sanitized by genre, 
because the Silence of the Lambs insistently reinforces and indeed recommends its grisly core images of cannibalism, kidnapping, and murder. It gloats over them. The book's heroine, Clarice Starling, earns degrees in criminology and psychology, as indeed Anna was later to do, before joining the FBI. And she ends up, as you'll remember, in a deathly battle with the ludicrously homicidal Hannibal Lecter, almost loses her life but emerges, heroic and triumphant, having rescued the most recent hostage on the very morning on which she was to be flayed. Recovering from her ordeal, she receives a letter from Dr. Lecter, predicting that this will be the first of many such experiences for her, because it's the plight that drives you, he says, seeing the plight, and the plight will not end, ever. Identification with the victim is the key. The heroine is saving herself and will continually need to do so. But it was quite impossible to assess or to measure the effect that the figure of Clara Starling was having on Anna's inner world. She had contracted Clara Starling much more violently than I had at the same age caught Holden Caulfield. But aside from acknowledging that she thought both the book and the film of The Silence of the Lambs pretty good, one had no idea what subtle transformation she was ongoing inwardly. She didn't either. Just as a tourist returning from an obscure land may contract a disease but not have the first outbreak for a number of years, so too Anna was unaware of harboring a dangerous virus caught like some sort of avian flu. There were occasional clues, but too easily misinterpreted. She once returned from a trip to Paris, wearing a baseball cap of French blue, which bore the white letters FBI on the front. She wore it like a uniform, proudly and incessantly, and we all thought that was cute, this pretty, slight-figured girl in her FBI hat. We didn't know she was serious. It came as some surprise towards the end of her final year at university when she announced that she was applying to do postgraduate work at Cambridge in criminology. Why would you want to do that, I asked incredulously. After all, she'd read philosophy and unaware of her identification with Agent Starling. So that I can apply to Quantico and train as a profiler. To the FBI, like your hat. That's where they do it, she said. You're kidding, right? No, she said. I could qualify. I'm an American citizen. I paused to give this my full attention and to take it seriously. We were about to define a genuine turning point in her life. I thought for a while. She waited patiently. What are you, crazy? She was accepted by Cambridge and wrote her thesis on British serial sex killers. My literary agent, Giles Gordon, who adored Anna, suggested that she turn the M. Phil thesis into a book. It was a sexy topic, and she was a sexy girl, and the combination of the two, he recognized, would be distinctly saleable. I can't write a book, said Anna. I'm not that good a writer, and I don't have enough confidence. Giles smiled reassuringly. It's a terrific idea, he said. Start with the childhood of a serial killer and see how and why they develop. Just do them one at a time, like a series of essays. Don't think book. You'll be fine. It'll be fine. 
And within two years, she had finished Murder by Numbers, a study of British serial sex killers since 1950, which was published by André Deutsch. She'd spent those years in the constant company, figuratively but harrowingly, of the Yorkshire Ripper, the Moors murderers, Fred and Rose West, Dennis Nielsen, and other predators and maniacs. It was radioactive material, contagiously unstable and explosive, and she was ill-equipped to handle it safely. Every day, at her desk or away from it, with frightening assiduousness, Anna was thinking and dreaming about sadists who raped and slaughtered vulnerable young women, of people who wanted to murder her. She fit the demographic perfectly. Her mother and I worried for her, fussed over her, offered cups of tea and homeopathic remedies and counsel, and we were reassured by her stoic engagement with her task. She was absolutely fascinated by the material, and if she identified with the victims, it was partly in order to give them a voice and hence some symbolic reprieve. She was the agent who could go into the darkness and emerge, if not with a rescued girl, at least with a story, a point of view, and a cause. As a writer, she also rescued that part of herself that had always felt raw and exposed and vulnerable. She became the Clara Starling, both of and to her darkest imaginings. She was writing every day about the murders of young women just like herself. How could she avoid, though, being dragged into an abyss of identification with the victims? however much she was employing her inner Clara Starling on their and her own behalf. She was quite aware of the dangers she maintained, and she was in control of them. What she wanted was help of an editorial and not a psychological kind. Was her introduction good enough? Did the prose flow? Was the chapter on the West's reading well? How could she frame her conclusion? I edited that manuscript, blue pencil in hand like a sword, as if I could defend Anna from the demons that it both described and threatened to unleash. They attacked me, certainly enough, and unless I was ceaselessly vigilant, my head would fill with terrible images. Surely, surely hers would as well. I've always been anxious for her from the moment I first held her after her birth. She seemed to me so delicate a gift that she would always need constant, unobtrusive, and benign watching over. She developed into a remarkably loving and fiercely loyal little girl whose attachments to both people and objects were almost comical in their intensity. When she was four, she howled when our old sofa was sold and attached herself to its legs so the removal men couldn't take it out of the house. She was afraid its feelings would be hurt. In supermarkets, she would insist that we buy the dented tins so that they wouldn't be left alone, sad and unwanted on the shelf. When she was little, I would take her down to our local playground, and she would insist on climbing the steps to the very large slide, all 17 of them, to a height of 20 feet. As she reached the top and her hands let go of the rail, she would teeter slightly, right herself and prepare to sit down, and below her, on the paved tarmac, I would shuffle from left to right as she swayed, arms held out, hoping to catch her in her fuzzy little brown jacket as she lost her balance and plummeted down to smash herself against the ground. I could just envisage her little body twisted and broken as she landed just on the wrong side of the slide, 
as I dived and failed to save her. In an article that she published in Vogue after Murder by Numbers came out, all she could offer by way of explanation for her fixation was that she had been entranced by the silence of the lambs. Some unexpected inner sea germinated, and there seemed little she or her parents could do to control the process. I suppose if it hadn't been Clara Starling, it would have been someone else. Or, and was this a radical and disarming thought, could it be that the furious little girl that she'd been feeling abandoned, abused, and enraged had identified neither with the FBI heroine nor with the victims, but with the murderer himself? Could it have been that the unconscious role model was not Clara Starling, but Hannibal Lecter? When she'd finished writing, she took to bed for two months, utterly depleted, and when she rallied, denying all the time that she was suffering the psychic effects of a long journey into the underworld, she shook herself off and got back to work, began a career as a reporter on the news of the world, that hideous tabloid, specializing in crime, it's the job, she said, that my alter ego has always wanted, and eventually she ghosted a book for Sarah Payne, the mother of an eight-year-old girl who was murdered by a pedophile. Sometime later, she began to do doctoral research into how the victims of crime are re-victimized by their experiences with criminal justice agencies, such as the police and the courts. It's good work, and I suppose somebody has to do it and teach it, which she seems to enjoy more than I or she would have guessed. But she confesses that she dreams of doing something or other with shoes, to which she's curiously addicted. Fabulous, high-heeled, brightly colored, happy-making shoes, she calls them. I hope they're shoes for a baby. Now I'm 64. I most look forward to that time when Anna and Bertie will have children of their own and I can have a little Vera, Chuck or Dave, remember the Beatles song, on my knee and introduce them to the admirable Horton and to that little angel, Matilda. And I shall recall little Rick, snuggled up and listening raptly, connected once again to my parents, as through my children and my children's children, the reading will go on. And we will read and read until the light fails and the night draws in, and I can read no more.